Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's guest, Owen O'Kane, was the NHS's clinical lead for mental health and is the author of two books, best-selling 10 to Zen and its sequel, 10 Times Happier. Drawing on his personal experience of mental anguish and on decades of experience as a therapist, Owen's books introduce concrete, jargon-free ideas to steer you away from harmful thoughts and behaviour. He joined us for a live stream in conversation with journalist and broadcaster Matthew Stadlin. Welcome to this How To Academy event with me, Matt Stadlin. I'm a presenter on the national radio programme LBC. It stands for Leading Britain's Conversation. And I suppose I'm in a way quite an appropriate interviewer, I hope at least for this event, because I present the overnight shows on Saturday and Sunday. And that means I come into contact with people who are often quite lonely, quite isolated. They might have trouble with their sleep. They might be highly anxious. I can reach nearly 200,000 people across the weekend. And I come into contact with some quite extraordinary people and some quite extraordinary stories. Many people tell me things that they've never even told another soul in their lives. So it's a very personal thing, what we're about to talk about, for that reason, and also because I suffer from quite acute anxiety myself. In fact, I would say in sort of old-fashioned jargon, I've almost had a breakdown over this COVID period. And that's not to be sensationalist, it's not to sort of boast and say I'm big enough and strong enough to admit to these frailties. It has been an incredibly difficult time, and it's been a struggle actually to get into work each and every week. So I feel very privileged to be in the presence of someone who knows even more about anxiety than I do. He knows about it perhaps from personal experience, but also from professional experience. And Owen O'Kane was a clinical lead in the NHS. He's already written a book that's been brilliantly received, 10 to Zen, and his book, 10 Times Happier, not written with a pandemic in mind, but incredibly time sensitive, incredibly relevant to this extraordinary moment that we are all in our different shapes and forms going through at the moment. It's also been very popular and I'm pleased, Owen, to welcome you to this how-to event. Thanks for having me, it's lovely to be here. I just want to begin, if I may, very briefly by asking you to to sum up why why you wrote the book and and what what it's really about. Okay, that's a good starting point and thank you for talking about your own anxiety. I think it's really, really important because I think this is often what happens with conversations around mental well-being. Often people don't truthfully talk out about what they're struggling with. And yet, interestingly, we know that about 80% of the population have struggled with anxiety or depression during this period at some given point. You know, So that's an enormous amount of people. So it'll be great to talk a bit more with you about that anxiety not specifically, but, you know, how we manage it and, you know, because there'll be a lot of people, I would imagine, watching who are, are struggling with anxiety. So, you know, we'll come back to that. But anyway, back to the original question. You will notice I'm Irish and I will digress. So <laughs> pull me back when I digress. So the book about, the book 10 Times Happier, my first book was 10 to Zen. That was about really teaching people how to quieten the mind. And that went down brilliantly. People, you know, people responded well to the book. It was clear to me that people were struggling with how to manage their mind and how to quieten the mind. And I thought, where do I want to go next with it? And I thought, I want to write a book about people struggling with happiness because as a psychotherapist, you see people struggle every day of the week. 
with all sorts of life. And the one thing that most people don't realize is that they actually get in the way of their own happiness. And what I wanted to talk about was the 10 areas of life that I see people get stuck. The 10 areas where I see people get in the way of their own happiness because our natural tendency is to want to put it out there. You know, I'm struggling because of my past or because he did that or she did that or because I lost my job. And, th and that might be true to your point, but often what goes on in the internal world how we see life, how we respond to life, creates really big problems. And I wanted to really write a book that was relatable, that people would get and understand, but more importantly, that it would help, help people move forward and become unstuck. And I think we can start with a bit of positivity. And then there certainly is light at the end of these various tunnels that we might experience. And, and what's positive is that there is much less stigma now attached to mental health than they used to be. And that's thanks partly to high profile people like Alistair Campbell, Ruby Wax, Stephen Fry for coming out and talking about their own experiences of mental yeah. health. Yeah. It's actually thanks to newspapers like The Telegraph. I don't happen to identify with The Telegraph politically. I wrote for them. They do really useful work. And LBC as well, my station, I think has been loud and proud about trying to get the message out there. So we are slowly as a society in Britain anyway, moving forward. Of course, and, and so we should. I mean, I get a bit irritated when I hear that statistic about one in four. I just think, whoever, whoever made that statistic up, it's not one in four, it's four in four, because every single human being on the planet has a brain. You know, and if you've got a brain, you will have mental health. So we all have mental health, and we will, we will all vary. I don't know a single person on the planet who doesn't have variations in their mental health. And I think part of the problem is that over the years we've kind of relied on the diagnosis or kind of somebody having a clinical opinion. But the reality is every single person out there will have days when they feel maybe a bit more anxious than normal or they'll have days when they feel a bit low. And that's part of the natural trajectory. And I think this is the good thing about conversations because normalizing the fact that mental wellness isn't fluid. It can't be. Because there are periods in life when things are going to go up and down. And I suppose my job is to help people see that, but more importantly, try and teach them how to navigate their way around that and how to manage their mind. How do we distinguish between our mental health in the very loosest sense? We might be happy or sad or, or reasonably anxious, let's say, or maybe a bit down. How do we distinguish between that and then mental health that actually requires help from a professional? Yeah. I think it's a good question. And I think for me, if I meet somebody and they're able to function day on day and they can get on with their life and it's not impacting on their work, their relationships, and they're wobbling, you know, that, that can be okay. And you can give people tools and techniques and how to manage that. Where it becomes more problematic, if somebody is really struggling to get out of bed in the morning or they really can't get on top of their anxiety or it's stopping them, you know, do things that they would ordinarily do in their life. At that point, I would say, okay, well, if things are probably a bit more difficult than normal, now's the time maybe to get a bit more support and help and learn ways to function better and to manage this. Because it's like, you know, the way I see it, if you broke your arm or your leg, you wouldn't hesitate to go to A&E and see a doctor and they would put a cast on and they would tell you to rest it. They'd give you painkillers and they would talk you through what you need to do. And I think our, our mind becomes tired, sometimes it becomes depleted, like every other organ in the body. And from time to time, it may need a bit more specific attention, a bit more support, or even things like medication. We know that around 30% of people who have a recurrent episode of depression or anxiety, they may need medication. You know, and again, we don't have these conversations often enough that some people do need additional support. 
So back in 2015, I wrote a piece actually for The Telegraph about why men should feel free to speak about their mental health. And I was very candid. It actually made me rather anxious publishing the article. So I'm worried about what future employers might think. But there were a couple of things I didn't quite regret about the piece. But that in, in hindsight, I wonder just how unhelpful they might have been to some readers. Now, most people who read The Telegraph are probably reasonably affluent. But one of my worries was that I pointed out that I'd managed to pay quite a lot of money out of my hard-earned income to a psychologist on a weekly basis to help me through a crisis point back in 2010, 2011. And of course, it occurred to me, and it should have occurred to me perhaps more forcefully when I was writing the piece, that a lot of people in this country simply can't afford to pay for that sort of private help. You were an NHS lead, I think, for West London in mental health. Yeah, I wonder where you think our, our national health service is at the moment and whether it's possible to generalise on mental health provision. I mean, I think, look, we're always going to need more. I think people are doing their best with the resources that they have. I think most teams are flat out. They're working hard. I know certainly um, when I was running an NHS team, you know, there were never enough resources because the sheer volume of demand, you know, it was always difficult to stay fully on top of it. But I think... You know, the NHS do a brilliant job. They treat as many people as they can. And a lot of people recover and go on to lead normal lives again. So I think it's important to say that we have really good provision in this country comparatively, but that we do need more. And I think anyone who would deny that, you know, I would question that. And of course, at the moment, we're going to need more. You know, we've just come out of a, well, we're just on our way out, hopefully, of a global pandemic. Well, of course, the next pandemic will be the kind of the mental health issues that have come off the back of this. People who are anxious or people who are struggling to to get back on track again. I think we have to be mindful of that. So, you know, my argument is, of course, if there are more resources and more provisions, well, then, you know, make them available. When I was growing up, one of the things my dad taught me was that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that can be, in some circumstances, incredibly helpful. It certainly helped me to become resilient in my life. But the other thing that I wondered about in that piece was that I I used those words. And there were times when I didn't want to get out of bed. I was making TV programs. I was presenting, producing, directing them. And I felt a huge amount of pressure and responsibility. And I wanted to make sure that they had a benevolent impact on the world. And I was worried that some of them might do harm for anxious reasons. And I said to myself at the time, I'm going to get out of bed this morning. I don't want to look back in six months time when I know I'm likely to be better and think I didn't quite make it out of bed. And that did help me. Yeah. And so I, I just want to know how much emphasis we should put on ourselves toughing things out. When is the moment to reach out and ask for help? When is the moment to say, look, this isn't about when the going gets tough, the tough get going. This is about me suffering from something that I really need support with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's kind of the, almost a differentiation between teaching people resilience and hard to cope measured against some of these concepts around man up and, you know, get your act together, which is never helpful. You know, if you're struggling, you're struggling. You know, there is no manning up. There is no getting your act together. But I think, you know, resilience is a really, really important thing. And I think sometimes we have to make decisions about, okay, what's helpful. So for example, you talk about there about just getting out of bed and hearing your dad's voice and that might have been useful for you. And of course, all the studies tell us that we don't encourage people not to try to live normally when they're struggling. We tell people if they're feeling depressed, try to get out, even if it's a walk around the block, 
that's going to activate some of the chemicals in the brain that you need working for you at the moment. We tell people who are anxious not to hide at home, even though their instinct might be to do that there, we encourage them to do the opposite and to face the anxiety and move towards it. So I think it's a case of, you know, resilience isn't about shaming people and kind of forcing them to move forward. It's about teaching them skills really to face up to the struggle and see what it's teaching them. This is going to sound like a really, really odd thing, but I truly believe wholeheartedly that when people go through a, a difficult episode like depression or anxiety, it's there for a particular reason. And it's trying to teach them something about something they may need to reconsider, an adjustment they may need to make in their life, something they need to let go of, something they may need to do more of, less of. I think all of these emotions are there to signpost to changes in our life. And I think if you listen to what depression or anxiety are trying to tell you, even though it's really uncomfortable, if you can get to that point, you think, okay, what am I learning from this? How does it move me forward? What changes do I need to make? Then instead of it becoming something dark, it can become something that you can use to move your life forward. I want to ask you, Owen, about the various strategies that, that you go through in the book in just a moment. But just one more question first about the pandemic. So very early on in this process, I was watching Newsnight or a clip from Newsnight in which the acclaimed filmmaker John Ronson was saying that actually for anxious people, they seem to be coping quite well during the pandemic. And I couldn't quite relate to that because, mm. as I've already said, I, I suffer, I've suffered in my life from bouts of quite acute anxiety. Mm. And, and this particular pandemic has been a perfect storm for me because my anxiety patterns have always revolved around my anxiety that I might do harm to other people. Yeah. So suddenly my irrational fears were colliding with reality in a very frightening way. And it's, it's been that perfect storm. It's basically been a sort of personal catastrophe for me. So I've just about managed to hold those parts of my life together that feel like they are sort of still intact. It's yeah. been a massive struggle. And I wonder what your reaction to the pandemic has been personally, but also have you got a sense of how other people are reacting to it? Are anxious people tending to become more anxious? Are people who were not anxious in the first place becoming more anxious? What sort of patterns might be developing? It's an enormous question because anxiety plays out in different ways for different people. So for one person, it may be an OCD presentation. For somebody else, it may be health anxiety. For somebody else, it may be more generalized type worry. So I think what I've seen in clinical practice is people have gone through all sorts of different stages. So for example, somebody with more generalized worry might have felt less anxious at the beginning because they were at home. They had no routine. There were no challenges for them. So it might have felt a bit easier. And what I've noticed is that as we're coming out of lockdown, some people have become more anxious at the fact of returning to, to normal again. Somebody with an OCD presentation might have felt safer at home because their thought might be, I'm not going to contaminate somebody by being at home, whereas when I go out into the real world again. But I think I've noticed real variations with people. I was curious at the beginning that people coped much better than I expected them to at the beginning. And I think that was partly about safety. Everyone was in it together. There was a sense that well, we're going to be looked after. We're going to keep each other safe. You know, there was a kind of camaraderie um, and almost like a wartime spirit. And I think that helped a lot of people. But I think now, as time has gone on, and it's becoming clear that we do have to evolve into a normal society again, I think for a lot of people, it's leaving them a little bit jittery and I think you know as a human being I've had periods when I've struggled with it I mean you know I don't like uncertainty 
you know, I really don't. I like to have a, a clear, we were saying earlier before we started the interview, I like to have a really clear cut plan. I need to know what's going on in my life. I need to know what direction I'm going. So for me, there were just lots of changes in my life very, very quickly. And I struggled with managing the uncertainty of that. But I suppose really doing what I do, I feel that I have to practice what I preach and, and go with the uncertainty rather than work against it. And I think that is the key thing, really, that at each step along the way, anxiety is about facing it head on, wherever you're at at that moment in time, but then making the appropriate tweaks and changes. You know, you know I, I think probably a good way of describing it is anxiety is like a weather pattern, and weather patterns change all of the time. And the key thing is to really spot the changes in weather and know how to adjust accordingly and get to know your anxiety well. You know, the more you get to know your anxiety and become familiar with it, and not see it as an enemy. And this is a key, this is probably my key point about anxiety. Most people feel that their anxiety is an enemy. It's a bad thing because it feels so uncomfortable. Whereas I think when you get to know your anxiety and you start to work with it rather than against it, you can then really, really start to use it to your advantage and it starts to feel much more comfortable. Anxiety does seem to, to breed in uncertain spaces. Yeah. And I wonder whether you might just very briefly be able to help me and thereby perhaps help lots of other people. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant to see so many people who are watching this evening on a hot summer's day. But for me, the poison of my anxiety, it's, it's, I'm fighting myself. It's a battle with my own mind. Yeah. And what I can't understand when I'm in a loop, when you talk about loops in the book, my risk assessment goes out of the window. So I can't tell whether the anxiety, I know I'm feeling anxious, but I can't tell whether the anxiety is based on reasonable fears or unreasonable fears. I'm someone who's capable of presenting an event like this or hosting a four-hour radio show or going on the television, and yet in almost every other area of my life, because of this inability to distinguish between what is reasonable and what is unreasonable, I am almost totally dysfunctional. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And that, that is a really classic description of what the anxious mind will deliver. Do you mind me asking, Matthew, what sort of things do you worry about? I worry about whether I'm going to give other people COVID. I mean, okay. I've had 11 tests. Not one of them has been positive, And things got so bad yesterday that after being tested, I, I noticed that the tester touched my chin with his glove. So I sprayed my face with Dettol. Now that's one step away from Donald Trump seeming to suggest that people should ingest bleach, which would kill you. And I'm sure that spraying Dettol on your face is a highly toxic and dangerous thing to do, or at the very least a stupid thing to do, and I don't recommend it to anyone watching or listening. But when I got home from that experience, I suppose it was a form of panic attack, I stood in my little outdoor space that I have at home and I thought, my God, this has got to stop. This, is, this, is, this isn't going right. And, and, and Matthew, when you fall into a worry like that, do you feel then that you get stuck? Does it feel like you get caught with a worry and it loops over and over and over again and then starts to snowball and build? It, it's a classic and dangerous cycle of constantly needing reassurance, yeah. whether that's from friends or indulgent family who've been incredibly kind or what going to get another test. And of course... When you go to get the test, that just plunges you back into temporary self-isolation. The anxiety goes up. When you get the result that comes back negative, you have this very brief burst of adrenaline and relief. And then I've noticed as the tests have gone on that the 
the moment of, of, of elation becomes briefer and briefer and briefer. Yeah, yeah. And now it's such a challenge to get into work on the weekends. In the earlier weeks, the anxiety building up to the next weekend would maybe start on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Now it starts five minutes after I've left the studio. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating what you've just described. And in, in when we talk about anxiety, we talk about safety behaviours. So what you've described there is a very classic safety behaviour. So you become triggered, you know, the event, this guy, you know, it touches your, your beard. And suddenly then in that moment, you're triggered. There's an intrusion then about worry. And the appraisal then becomes, I'm going to harm somebody. So you then try to neutralise it. You try to push the worry down. So the safety behaviours that you're describing are about trying to prevent somebody else being harmed. So you keep going and you keep having tests because that makes you believe, at least if I know that, that will prevent harm happening to other. But here's the key thing about safety behaviours, regardless of what they are. So they normally involve reassurance, seeking, checking, going over detail again, wanting to have a load of answers, um, going over old detail. It can play out in many, many different ways. But the problem with them is that they will give you short-term relief but the problem is what they do longer term is that they keep the worry going. So if you think of your anxiety spinning as a loop, one of the, the, the key things I would say to you, and this is going to sound really odd and it will feel counterintuitive, is try to stop having tests as regularly. Because if you know that they're driven by anxiety and the need to have a test is driven by anxiety, then the more you keep doing that, and I want to differentiate here, that's, this is not about not being responsible and being aware of your own health status. This is about knowing that you're driven by an anxious pattern and that the more you do it, the more you're feeding into your worry. And your job is almost to kind of go against the urge and the desire to feel better. What you've got to do is you've got to face it and think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to manage this. And I'm going to face normal life without, and then suddenly you, you then face, what you're doing is you're heading, you know, you're facing your anxiety head on. And then in time, what will happen, it will begin to, you know, begin to drop off. And as you say in the book, you have to endure that incredibly painful period. Oh my God, it, honestly, there are no short, I mean, for anybody watching, this is a key thing about anxiety. Remember, it is not going to kill you. 90% of what you worry about will never happen. And the key thing is, when you learn to be courageous and face up to your worry, and get comfortable with it and not see it as a bad thing. Just see it as a reminder. Okay, this discomfort has come up again. You know, and my anxiety's come up. I'm going to work with it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to submit to it. I'm going to work with it. Then you change your relationship with your anxiety. And that's where the freedom comes. I'm curious to know, because you mentioned drugs and addiction in the book, of course, whether it might be quite a helpful analogy. I'm sure there are important differences, but if you're coming off a drug, coming off your safety mechanisms as an anxious person isn't entirely different. In, in, in a way, because they become habitual. So what I, you know, if I'm working with somebody who's got an anxiety disorder and I'm trying to encourage them to drop their safety behaviours, what I'll say is, okay, um, if it's somebody who's got OCD, for example, and they feel that they need to check the door is locked 50 times, I'll negotiate with them and say, okay, well, what would it be like over the next couple of days just to check it 45 times? And then what would it be like to check it 40 times? So you kind of have this negotiation and then there'll be moments when the person will argue back and say, no, no, I can't do that today because I'm worried this will happen. So the whole time you're negotiating, but what you're doing is that you're helping someone see 
that they don't have to carry out the safety behavior. And then the more they do that, then they get comfortable and they begin to understand, okay, I can feel better. I can feel less uptight. My mind can feel quieter. But you raised a really valid point earlier about in moments when your anxiety is really kicking off, it's really difficult to engage your rational brain. And I think that's one of the important things that when the amygdala, so you've got a part of your brain on the right-hand side called your amygdala, when that's highly activated, so it's a threat center, it's a good thing. So if you had a, a dog run into your room now and the dog was quite frightened, your amygdala would become activated and your instinct would be to protect yourself from the dog. So it's a healthy mechanism. But the problem with anxiety is what we know from all the studies is that with anxiety, the amygdala is overactivated. It's working when it doesn't need to. And when you've got an overactivated amygdala that's firing out all of the time, it just means that you're fired up. And it's almost like trying to drive in fog. It's hard to see and think clearly. And this is the part of the brain, of course, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, though, that keeps us alive. So it's very, very powerful. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, pri- it's primarily driven. And, you know, back in Ken in Neanderthal times, it was a really handy thing to have, to have this very, very active amygdala system. But the problem is we have become more sophisticated you know, our language, the way we think, the way we respond to life. And what we've got is, I often describe it like inflammation. You know, a highly activated amygdala is an inflamed brain. You know, you've got a part of the brain that's just working way too hard. And I suppose part of my work and my colleagues is what we try to teach people to do is, okay, you know, turn the volume down, reduce the noise. And I suppose really this is what 10 times happier talks to people about. How do you quieten your mind? How do you manage worry? How do you regain that sense of control again? The book's full of tips about how to, in some ways, get on top of this and and not kind of be a victim to the content of your mind. One of the tips that I've learned from my psychologist over the years is when you have that rush, when you're triggered, when that part of your brain is going like that, flashing crazily at you, is not to act in that moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless, of course, a lorry is coming towards you and it's real. But if you can recognize that that's actually a triggering of your anxiety, don't act in those five to 10 minutes. Wait, allow that feeling to pass and then make a judgment. Yeah, or it's almost like sometimes in the books I talk about, it's almost like watching a movie. You know, if you can create a space so that when something difficult's going on and you're highly anxious or highly activated and these worries are on the ceiling, you learn to step back and recognize, okay, I'm triggered at the moment, and there's a lot of worries, and they're playing out, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to watch them, and I'm going to observe them for what they are. I'm not going to engage with them. I'm just going to observe them for what they are. So even that, what you do is you begin to discharge worry. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, a worried mind, the more you respond to your worried mind, the more you build it, the more you activate it. It's like a snowball. So it's that skill of kind of thinking, okay, if I can quieten the noise a bit, learn the skill of creating space between me and my worry, and then learn the skill of beginning to observe your worry and see it for what it is, just a thought. It's not a fact. It's just a thought. Then suddenly you develop a new relationship with it. What we've been talking about here, I mean, reflects something of what you say in the two chapters in the book under the headings, The Worry Trap, mm. A Tip for Habit. Yeah. Could, could you just very briefly sum up the worry trap for us? So the worry trap is that in, in psychology, we talk about positive beliefs about worry. So anybody who's got any sort of anxiety presentation will believe that worry is a good thing. So when you talk about 
your worry, Matthew, about contaminating somebody, your anxious brain is telling you that that's a healthy thing to do. Okay, and that's kind of part of the challenge with worry is that you need to step out of that belief that excessive worry is a healthy or a good thing. It's about reviewing that and thinking, okay, um, this is maybe not healthy. You need to start looking at the evidence a bit more. You know, so I talked earlier about 90% of worries never come true. I would say to anyone listening today, you know, think back over all of the things that you've worried about over the last six months even and go through them. How many things have come true? You know, and very often what you find is lots of them don't come true. It's not saying that some of them won't. So we don't live in a perfect world where we're saying nothing bad is ever going to happen. But what we're saying is the majority of things probably are not going to happen. And we know that from the evidence out there. So it's about creating that ability to stand back, observe worry, not overinvest in it. And, you know, I suppose in some ways, because we have about, this may be a better way of phrasing it, we have about 80,000 thoughts a day, okay? Um, we know that around 60 to 80% of them can be very critical or negative or worrying in nature. Now, that's a lot of worrying, anxious, critical thoughts. And the thing is, you don't have to be driven by them. Often, people learn how to worry. You know, I know certainly I learned how to worry. I grew up in Northern Ireland in the trouble. So I grew up in Belfast with bombs and bullets. I didn't realize I was anxious until I left, which is kind of why I got involved in this work. Suddenly I started to become curious about the fact, but what I didn't realize until I was in my own therapy was that my brain was hardwired to worry. I had been taught how to worry. I had learned how to worry. And the good news about that for anybody listening today is that if you, if you've learned how to worry, or you've been part of an environment or a family or a, a culture that's taught you how to worry, you can also unlearn how to worry. And I think this is one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is we can overattach to our worry like it's a companion and a good thing. And it's about letting that go. Talk to me briefly about positive thinking, because you mentioned that 60 to 80% of our thoughts are negative. Mm. Can we override can, can we reboot the system? Can we override that negativity? So, for example, can I go around in the daytime or on my way to work saying to myself, repeating as a mantra, I don't have COVID? Can that help? I personally don't believe in positive thinking, and that's going to sound like a really odd thing for somebody of my profession to say, because I think there are times in life when, you know, if somebody has just lost someone or they've had a, you know, as you know, I spent 10 years working with people who were terminally ill. If somebody's got a terrible diagnosis and they've got something, you can't say to them, well, think positively, it's all going to be fine. They're not going to buy it. I believe in constructive thinking. And what I would say is that, you know, if you were repeating the mantra, what you could do is you could remind yourself that despite all of your worries, you're still here, you haven't contracted COVID and you haven't harmed anybody. And I would say, okay, look at the evidence and measure that against four or five months of time and energy invested in worry, how much of it has actually benefited you in any way at all? So kicking the habit, what does that involve? So kicking the habit in the, in the book, I talk about people who generally use habits as a way of coping. You know, and this, this is a fascinating thing where we have three systems that we work from in life. So we have a threat system, which we've kind of talked about today, which is our anxiety-driven systems. We have a drive system, which is kind of like our ambition, moving forward in life, our achievements. And we also have a thing called our soothing system. And I would say probably 95% of people I've treated in my career, when they come to therapy, 
most people arrive at therapy and they haven't got any access to their soothing system. How do I self-soothe? How do I look after myself? So when I talk about kicking habits, most people I see, they rock up and they're struggling with habits of drink, too much drugs, sex, shopping, unhelpful relationships. We become hooked on an unhelpful habits as a way of coping, as a way of soothing. But of course, a bit like safety behaviours. Yeah, short term, we might get a bit of ease from them. But the problem is longer term, all they do is maintain the problem. So I think it's about identifying what your unhelpful habits are. I couldn't tell you what your habits are or what's helpful or not helpful, but most people know what's not helpful for them. Something that's really important to emphasise, at least this is your view, is that you have to want help. You have to want to change. You have to recognise that you've got a problem. When I used to go to counsellors when I was much younger, I kind of got into this weird cycle of trying to prove to them that I was cleverer than they were, even if they were cleverer than I was. When I went in 2010 and I was having an absolute crisis, I went to the psychologist and said, listen, I'm not going to play any games with you. I just want help. I need your help. And you have to recognize that, don't you? I, I think so. And look, it, it can take people a long time to get there, you know, because, you know, denial is a really powerful emotion. And I've seen it a million times where people will come and say, oh, I don't think there's anything that wrong, but my wife's asked me to come or uh, I'm just here because my boss thinks it's a good idea. And I suppose part, part of my job, and I suppose really part of what I try to achieve in the books in the most diplomatic, compassionate way possible, is to help people see, actually, you may not be coping as well as you think, or there might be challenges that are getting in the way. And until people take responsibility, I mean, this is, got, you know, one of the chapters is, you know, I talk about taking responsibility, you know, because that is one of the toughest things. Most people, we're all human at the end of the day, it's much easier to blame our struggles on life, the past, the future, what he did, what she did, this happened, when actually, ultimately, my happiness, your happiness, everyone watching today, we are responsible for that. And until you get to that moment where you think, okay, it's up to me to make the changes, you stay stuck. So I, for example, I could say I got divorced in the middle of the pandemic or the divorce came through. I haven't touched another human being since February. I saw my parents for the first time in four and a half months. I'm usually a gregarious, hugely sociable person on stage. We'd normally be talking on stage in front of 500 people, you and I, right now. And I could say, well, look, all of that and the pandemic is leading me to be as anxious as I am. I could blame it. If I blame it, I'm not taking responsibility, am I? I'm not owning it and therefore I'm not confronting it and therefore I'm not, I'm, I'm gonna, as you would say, stay stuck. I think it's a two-way thing. I think it's about acknowledging that, look, to not be struggling at the moment, I, wor- I would worry more about somebody who isn't struggling at the minute. You know, unless you've been unconscious over the last couple of months, how can you not struggle? How can you not worry? So what I would say is, look, I get it completely. There's very valid reasons why you might be struggling and worrying at the moment, but it's about how do you make the tweaks and changes and adjustments that make this more manageable for you. And I suppose that's the key thing, really, because if someone comes along and they say it's all terrible, it's all awful, well, then that's going to be their experience. That's how they're going to feel. Whereas what I'll say is, okay, look, it might be tough. This might be awful. This might be really challenging at the moment. Okay, but how can you change? How can we alter perspective that make it more manageable for you rather than get caught in the awfulness and get stuck in that as a pattern? It becomes another loop, essentially. 
So let me ask you about the role of other people. One of the chapters is hell is other people. <laughs> That's slightly counterintuitive. And I want to go into that in, in a little bit of detail. But first of all, other people can help us in these situations. It's so important, I think, for people to realize they can reach out. It's such an important thing, even if they're not talking to a professional because it's not available or they can't afford it or whatever it is. Talk to friends, talk to family if you can. In my case, though, I, I, I worry that my family and friends who love me so much, and I'm lucky in that way, have perhaps for a while allowed themselves to be enablers. So to constantly to be part of that reassuring process. And that in a way doesn't help me to fight the anxiety. I don't blame them for a second, I blame myself. But there is, there is a risk that people can enable people suffering from anxiety. In some ways, and I think again, it's about pointing out to the person who's struggling with anxiety that every time you have the instinct or the urge or the want to get reassurance from somebody else, that's probably when you should try and go internally and self-soothe because that's where you're going to become empowered. And when I talk about hell as other people in the book, remember the premise of the book is to help people acknowledge where they're getting stuck in their own life. You know, who are the relationships? Who are the people that don't contribute to your happiness? And this is the thing, I think, we're all guilty of this here. Sometimes we can fall into relationships or friendships that are not necessarily good for us. Or we can surround ourselves with people that can have more of a toxic influence and a helpful influence. And in this chapter, I talk about that. You know, sometimes it is about standing back and think, okay, who are the key people in my life? Who are the people that I have worth and value with and I have a two-way relationship with measured against who are the people in my life who it's not a two-way relationship, you know, or maybe all they do is just dump all of their stuff on me. They're not particularly interested in my stuff. I think sometimes it's about recognizing that who we surround ourselves with is what we become. And I think making healthy choices, not only about your internal world, but who and what you surround yourself with is equally important. And this can extend beyond mental health, I suppose, or in mental health in the loosest way anyway. So Clive Woodward, who I've interviewed for a podcast, England's only rugby World Cup winning coach, that's going to come out in the next few weeks when rugby finally returns. He, he talks, I think, about sponges, about people who sap energy from the environment. Yeah, I talk about it in the book. I talk about radiators and drains, you know, so we all have people in our life that, you know, you just know when you're with them. I know sometimes when I catch up with people and, you know, I always know actually the people in my life, the people who I really enjoy being with. I never dread meeting them. I never have any unease about meeting them. And I always come away lifted. I had dinner with friends last night in town. I just came away recharged because there was no effort. I don't even know what we talked about, but it was just nonsense, but it was just recharging. Measured against if I'm around somebody and it, it feels draining or I feel that they're just constantly trying to tap at my resources or take stuff the whole time or regurgitate all of their stuff. I do think it's really healthy sometimes to create boundaries and think, well, that's not a healthy relationship. And actually, you're not really doing somebody a favor by letting them do that the whole time. If you've got somebody in your life who isn't treating you well, if you continue to let them do that, they will continue to do it. So actually, the stopping people and creating boundaries and think, actually, no, that's not acceptable. Not only does it help you, but actually you do the, the other person a favor as well. So my next question, I suppose, fits into that because it's, it, it's about comparison being the thief of joy, as you would describe it. Mm. And we live in a world of social media, endless comparison. And I'm guilty of it myself. I'm more guilty of pumping out 
stuff that is supposed to big myself up, to remind the world. I mean, it's part and parcel of what I do in a way. You have to have some sort of status, some sort of profile, some figure of sorts, even if you're in the middle of the night when you're broadcasting. But I'm very conscious that I do that. So during this period where my life has felt like it's fallen to pieces, if you look to my Instagram feed or my Twitter feed, Occasionally, I'm candid about what I'm going through, but if you looked at the events I do and the shows that I present, you'd have absolutely no idea about it. Yeah. So someone might be comparing themselves to me and thinking, oh, look, Matt's got an exciting job, or who's yeah. doing an interesting interview with Owen O'Kane, and, and little do they know that I'm breaking down. It, it, it's a really good point, actually. Um, I had something really funny happened last week, actually. I was, I was doing a TV interview for this morning, and about two minutes before I was doing the interview, my Wi-Fi dropped. And I was literally running up my street with a laptop to see if I could get neighbours with a Wi-Fi. And I was absolutely stressed to the max because I had like two minutes to go and I had to come back. Now, a friend of mine texted me after it and said, oh, God, I saw you in, on this morning and da-da-da, you know, chat-chat-chat. So on, on the surface, it looked absolutely fine. But actually, the reality was two minutes before that interview, I was running up the street like somebody deranged with a laptop stress to the max and i think this is what happens on people's social media accounts as well is all we see is what they want us to see we get a snapshot some people will share truthfully but most people will give you the illusion of what they want you to see you know how well they look how happy they are how connected they are but you know my argument is look if you need to demonstrate that so much and you need to show it so much well then it probably says something quite significant about the truth and it's been an interesting one for me because I didn't use social media. I genuinely, my manager will tell you this here, I didn't know what a hashtag was. So when I did my first book, they were talking to me about, well, you need to have a social media presence, you need to do this. And they were talking about hashtags and I had no clue what a hashtag was. So I was quite astounded when I jumped into the world of social media to discover what went on out there and, and what it's like. Now, to be fair, I use Instagram quite a bit and I create videos and you know, I create a lot of content on there and it's quite a warm community, but I'm also conscious that it's easy to fall into the trap and think, oh my God, that guy's got an incredible body. My God, this guy's doing really well. You can see how easy it is to fall into the trap where actually it's an illusion. It's a snapshot of their life. It doesn't mean that they are not lying in bed at night, you know, worried sick or not sleeping or not eating well. So I kind of think, I talk about comparison being the thief of joy is because never ever assume that what you see is truth. And in fact, an anonymous attendee messaged in 20, 30 minutes ago now saying that what Owen has just said ignores those who are struggling on the inside, but functioning on the outside. So that's touching on what we've just been talking about. Sometimes, sometimes known as functioning depressives, he or she says, these people can be a severe suicide risk and should not be dismissed as okay just because they appear to be okay. And of course, you wouldn't dismiss them. But that's exactly my point. You know, I would never assume that anyone's okay until I sit down and have a full conversation with them and get to know what's going on in their internal world. And I think that's true for, for all of us, really. You know, never assume someone has it all together or that they're, they're, they're happy and it's all working for them because I truly believe most people are struggling with something. You know, people don't have it together. So whoever sent the message, they're making a really valid point. And I suppose my work is always about Go inside, you know, take care of what's going on inside. Manage your mind, take care of your mind, prioritize it above everything else. And this is probably one of my key points and one of the things I want to emphasize really, really strongly. This piece of jelly that you've got in your head, your brain, is the epicenter for all of your experience. 
how you see life, how you respond, how you react, how you think. But it's the one thing that we pay little time and attention to. We go through life, we're achieving this, we're doing that. We, we spend little time on the maintenance, so looking after the, you know, managing the mind. And I would say that is probably one of the key things. Why would you not manage the thing that's responsible for all of your life? You start the book by suggesting that we stop looking back because that's not where we're going. Where we're going, and you end the book by saying that we should live in the now and basically defocus as much as we tend to on on the future. And in my profession, and in so many other people's professions, and it's almost a way of life. It's not just about work. We look to the future for that moment of happiness or that destination. And we forget that the future is just as much now as it is in the future. Today was yesterday's future. Well, what I say is, I, I never say don't look back, because I think sometimes you have to, everybody, you know, as a therapist, you're always making sense of someone's story. But where it becomes problematic is if I see somebody getting stuck in their story, and they just keep coming back over the detail over and over and over again, or they become a product of the difficult things that have happened in their past, then I say, look, make sense of your story, understand who you are today, based on your past, but it doesn't mean that you have to latch on to all of it. You can make decisions about what you let go of. And I think, of course, in therapy, what most people rock up with is that they're holding on to all of the stuff that's been destructive and unhelpful. So my job is to help them say, okay, maybe it's time now to, to let some of that go. You know, there's stuff now that you can begin to let go of. And likewise with the future, you know, we haven't learned anything over the last couple of months. What we do know is that often there isn't predictability. Often there is uncertainty. Often we don't know what's going to come next. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to plan or have hopes or aspirations. These are really, really important. But what I am saying is that when you spend more time just kind of valuing the here and now and really living that more fully, then suddenly you feel much more at ease. And then interestingly, your anxiety levels drop considerably. I make a list every morning, and this is truthful. Every single morning, I make a list of everything that's bothering me or I make a list of the things that I'm becoming preoccupied with or I'm looking forward to. And I ask myself a really simple question, what can I deal with today? And I come back to that there, and the rest of the stuff I almost visually just kind of think, okay, well, it's on the radar, but I'm going to leave that. It's not for today, it's not for now. And for me, there's real freedom in that because there are times when you were trying to juggle all of it. It's just not possible. Tell us, if you would, about mindfulness and how that plugs into trying to live more in the present. I mean, look, mindfulness has become, uh, you know, it's, the buzz, it's been the buzzword for the last five, ten years, really, hasn't it? And I think often it gets misrepresented and I think often it's sold in ways that are not terribly helpful. And I think I'm really interested in the science of mindfulness. And what we know is that it's primarily about being present in the moment. And what we know about that is, or if we focus on one thing in a moment, what we know is that it quietens what the Buddhists call monkey mind. When you were talking, Matthew, earlier about your worry, if we MRI scanned your brain when you're in worry mode, what we would find is that you have a lot of neural pathways flying out in many different directions. And what we know about mindfulness is that when you bring your, your attention to one thing, like the breath, or a smell, or a sound, or even repeating a mantra, what you do is you quieten some of the activity in the mind. So you basically what you do is you, you know, when they talk about monkey mind, if you think of a monkey jumping from one tree to another, what you do is you begin to train the mind. 
you reduce some of the activity, the neural pathways then start to connect more helpfully. And all the MRI scans and neuroscientific research tells us that when you can practice mindfulness truthfully, which is just basically turning up and paying attention, you know, it could be having a cup of tea. You could, we could finish this talk and you could make a cup of tea and think, right, I'm just literally going to have this cup of tea. But that's where my energy and my focus is going to be just on tasting the tea and drinking it and, you know, just turning off all the rest of the noise. That's but mindfulness and that's meditation. You've written a whole chapter about getting out of your head. I've spent the last few months in my head and that's partly induced by loneliness without wanting to blame anything. external or or, or real beyond the anxiety but I remember vividly 10 years ago going through my last majorly anxious episode and it was very drawn out I'd be so anxious about so many different things sometimes I would forget what I was supposed to be anxious about and it was like the waves were crashing up on my shore and they were overwhelming me yeah Yeah. thanks in part to the tools that my psychologist was able to help me with yeah and I was emerging from that the waves would still sometimes come, but my defences would be up and they would roll away again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a brilliant analogy. I've heard it described in a different way. Um, sometimes if I'm teaching, I'll talk about if you think of a pilot who's flying an aircraft, you know, if they hit turbulence, they might need to slow down, they might need to change altitude, they might even need to change direction for a bit just to pursue the turbulence. And I think the anxious mind can be a bit like that, that when we have an acute episode or when we're conscious that there's a lot of activity going on, there's a lot of worry and that hideous anxious feeling moves in. It's about stopping to think, okay, what tweaks or adjustments can I make? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to create a bit of space? What would help me settle? You know, what techniques would work? So it could be mindfulness. It could be using the breath. I use a technique in one of the books called bilateral stimulation, which is tapping, which is just allowing your brain to go somewhere quiet and peaceful just using slow deep breaths and using these slow bilateral taps. And what we know is that the action of creating an image, choosing a word that's kind of peaceful for you and these kind of slow tapping gestures can help deactivate your amygdala. So it's kind of all of of these techniques, that's essentially what you're aiming to do is you're not trying to completely switch off the amygdala because you can't do that or you're dead. But what you're trying to do is that you you don't need it overactivated all of the time. It doesn't need to be working so hard because when that happens chemically, you know, you've got too much cortisol, you've got too much adrenaline. So your job is to kind of think, okay, how can I deactivate this a little? How can I turn the volume down? All of these techniques help do that. May I ask you about your view on how connected our mind is to our body? Earlier on, you talked about the broken leg. And if if, if we are seriously anxious or depressed, that that can be like a broken leg. We need help to get it fixed. We wouldn't think twice about help, get, getting help for, for an injury, a physical injury like that. Of course, the brain is physical. And understanding that it is physical and biological was something that helped me in the process that I went through, the psychology that I went through, because it, in a way it reassured me. It, it told me that there was something wrong and something needed to be fixed. But I want to jump from that very briefly to this question of the symptoms one might be able to develop as a result of anxiety. Because I'm in this terrible trap, this terrible loop that we alluded to earlier, where I might think, okay, I can breathe now, I can come out of this anxiety about COVID. And then I'll feel something in my nose or in my stomach, and I'll suddenly be convinced that I've got the disease. And that that then spirals into worry. And the worry, in my view, and in the view of some others, might then create more symptoms. 
Well, that's a, that's a different thing. I mean, that's kind of almost a health anxiety, isn't it? It's kind of almost like it becomes another trigger. And then, you know, it's just a trigger playing out in a different way, but it's the same pattern that plays out because say, for example, you started to cough, there's your trigger. Then the interpretation might be, does this mean I've got COVID? So you then begin to build a story and a narrative around it. And then that might lead to a safety behavior. So it's just another way in which anxiety plays itself out. Anxiety is really tricky and it's quite sneaky. It will find a way in. And then once it finds a way in and knows you're triggered, then it will start to create the narrative. So the key thing is to, this is why I talk a lot about get to know your anxiety, become really familiar with it, become the expert in your anxiety, because the more clever you get at managing it, then the more you can jump in quickly and almost short circuit going down that road that you don't want to go down. So, you know, the more active you become in managing your own anxiety. And I just want to mention as well, your question about the body and the connection to the body. I don't think you can differentiate sometimes i'll work with a client and they don't know what they're feeling or i'll say how do you feel about that and they can't give me anything and then i'll say okay just sit for a minute and close your eyes for me and say okay where do you feel that in your body and then suddenly they'll say oh my god i feel sick i've got a pain in my chest or you know and there's a great expression the body holds a score so i think often even with anxiety you may not know what you're thinking but if you go to the body wherever you're feeling your anxiety you know if it's in your chest or your tummy go to it and almost, you know, lean into the anxiety there, use your breath, go to that, go to that focus. You know, the two are interlinked the entire time. Why is it important to you, as you say in the book, to have no regrets? Because I just think, by and large, you know, when I talk about not having regrets, I think, you know, there will always be regrets, always regrets. We, we will all have things in our lives that we can think, I wish I could have done that differently, or I wish I had done something different. But I suppose if we're not willing to learn from our regrets then again, it's another area in life in which we become stuck. So I think you need to, you know, if there is stuff going on that you do regret, you need to know that. But again, it's the, the key thing is, it's about making the decision that the rest of your life is not going to be driven. I tell that story about, the, in the book, about this lady I worked with when I was in palliative care, and she had, you know, she'd given away a child. And um, came to England, and no one knew about this. And when I was working with her, you know, she was really struggling. She was dying. She was coming to the end of her life. And um, we talked about, you know, the loss of this child that she'd never talked to anyone about because of the, the shame of having a kid out of wedlock in Ireland at that time. And, you know, right up until her dying, about three, four days before she died, if I remember correctly, she hadn't told anybody this big secret that she had. She carried this regret all of her life around this child and I kind of think you know her life was consumed by this consumed by a regret that had she had just told someone or shared that story with and I think for a lot of people people do carry regrets around with them people carry shame with them I mean I think it's another big topic and it's huge but you know people do carry this sense of shame I'm not good enough I'm worthless I'm not enough when you carry that stuff around it festers and that does fit into the point you make in the book we've touched obliquely on it so already <laughs> Some people who are highly anxious want desperately to hold on to their narrative of why they're justified in feeling how they do. Yeah, exactly. I, I've never treated anybody where you don't end up in a tug of war at some point with their anxiety. You can feel the person almost wanting to hold on to it as, well, actually, no, this is mine and I know this and I'm familiar with it and it makes sense to me. And my job therapeutically is to say, no, I get all of that, but I'm going to take you a different way. Because if, if your anxiety model were working for you, then you wouldn't have come for help. And I would say to anybody listening today, 
if you fall into that trap of believing that your anxiety is a good thing and that living a life of half existence where it's inhibiting your life and stopping you living a full life, then it's your responsibility to, to decide, okay, I'm not going to go for that. I'm going to go a different direction. We've almost personified anxiety in this conversation. What is anxiety? Is it a disease? Because I see it as my enemy. You, you were worried about the idea of seeing anxiety as an enemy, but I see the sort of real core mat, the mat that charges around the world and, and plays rugby at high velocity and, 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 I don't know, when I'm single, goes on loads of dates or whatever it is, yeah. goes on stage in front of 2,000 people. That's the sort of mat that's sort of bon vivant and, and, and throwing myself into life and loving it. And then there's this sort of crushing anxiety that is asphyxiating me. I mean, it's clearly we all have to live slightly or very differently at the moment because of the pandemic, but I, I'm living that half-life. I'm not even living that half-life. I'm living an eighth of a life at the moment. So what is this anxiety? I think probably the simplest way is anxiety is an intolerance of uncertainty. I mean, I think that's probably the, the clearest definition I can give. When you're not tolerant of uncertainty, then your anxiety will work hard to try and create order, certainty, predictability, and life doesn't offer that. Life doesn't offer predictability, certainty, order. It doesn't. And I think getting comfortable with the fact that life, we don't know what's going to come next. We take everything one step at a time. There's where the freedom comes. But I think an anxious mind will try to create a predictable narrative. It will want certainty. It will want order. It will want precision. And real life doesn't get that. It doesn't deliver that. We've talked about how we are becoming better as a society in addressing anxiety, and we haven't really talked about depression but, and other mental health disorders or issues, but David has messaged in to say, what if you come across someone who's tough at work, a boss maybe, who doesn't get it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's about having the conversation. I, I truly believe, I mean, it's really, really interesting. I don't believe people don't get it, to be honest. I think it's a cop-out. I think... People can hide behind defense mechanisms. If you're talking to another human being, they will understand human struggle. And I think often when you're having those conversations with people, it's about being as honest and truthful as you can be with them about what it is you're struggling with. But I truly don't believe that people don't get it. Most people know what it's like to have a period when they feel flat. Most people know what it's like to be awake. And in case like what you just described with, I think you said his name is David. What I'd say is, you know, Talk to your boss, you know, and actually be, be clear that you're going to sit and you're going to talk it through until he listens, until he understands, because ultimately you have that right. You have that right to be heard. You have that right to be understood. And I think it goes back to your point earlier about these conversations. I mean, all of the stuff you and I have talked about tonight, there's nothing abnormal about this conversation. It's a very healthy conversation. It's very real. People out there, I know, will get this. They will, you know, they will identify with it and they will understand most of what we've said. So I think these are normal conversations. You can't force people to help or to listen, but I think you, all you can do is just show up and just keep telling your truth and talking honestly. Vivian wants to know, would you please just talk briefly a little bit more about this, the self-soothing system? Yeah, I mean, it, it's important, this, and, and it's about identifying the things within you as a human being. You can't be overly prescriptive about what self-soothing is, but it's about identifying the things within you that you can tap into and access that make you feel 
quieter in your mind that make that soothe you that make you feel calmer and it can be i mean here's probably one of the, the simplest ways of describing it i would say to anybody listening today when you're struggling listen to the tone of how you talk to yourself and often when you say that to people if i'm running a group for anxiety i'll say to people what's your tone like when you're going through a hard time and they will say like oh my god i'm vile to myself i just tell myself to get over it what the hell's wrong with you and i'd say would you say that to another human being who's struggling so even if you start with one simple change of tone, talk to yourself respectfully, talk to yourself, use a bit more compassion, use techniques that work for you, take time out of your day, make changes to your life, choose the people you're with. These are all acts of self-care, acts of compassion. Fiona has an interesting point to make. I mean, I, I myself have, have wondered, and this is about the difficult line between reality and unreality, reasonable anxiety and unreasonable anxiety. I've wondered whether I might be someone who suffered the long tail of COVID. I wasn't tested when I think I probably had it months and months ago. Yeah. And therefore I can never be sure. Well, I'm not sure now as to whether I ever had it, but I've wondered whether I'm sort of going crazy, going mad, or, or whether actually it's a very rational fear. And Fiona says, I've the long tail covid symptoms she says she has tight chest and fatigue she's been to the doctor all vital signs are good she and her shiatsu therapist her doctor and her shiatsu therapist think it's anxiety causing shallow breathing and that that's leading to greater anxiety etc this is a really helpful session i mean there's no doubt when there is a disease out there especially yeah. if lots of people are suffering from this so-called long tail that yeah. anxiety levels are going to go up of course. And you know something, it would be abnormal to expect. I mean, it would be unrealistic of me to say, oh, just don't worry about it. It's fine. This is normal. You know, normal worry will be there's a pandemic out there. People get ill. People have died of this year. So to say to people, don't worry, would actually be, it would be a stupid thing for me to say. What I'm saying is that normal worry would be, okay, this is a bit concerning. You know, I'm going to need to hand wash. I'm going to need to take precautions. I'm going to be mindful of this because I need to take care of my health. That would be functional, normal worry. Where it becomes problematic then is, for example, if the day becomes dominated by watching the news, fixating on worry, checking symptoms, having numerous tests, when it starts to impinge on your life in a way that feels a bit more obsessive or all-consuming, then that moves out of the parameters of functional worry into kind of more dysfunctional worry that will create difficulties. And I think that's the key thing with all anxiety really is, we're not saying that not to worry, you know, as long as you're alive and breathe, you're gonna have worries. It's not, it's not saying that we just push it all away, but it's the difference between, okay, you know, what's, what's a reasonable worry? And what can I do about this? There's a, there's a great saying, you know, worries are always start with what if, Well, then you move to then what? And if you've, you've got a solution, then you manage it. I suppose the reality is there is quite a lot of what-ifs around at the moment. There is a lot of uncertainty because this is a, a novel virus and doctors don't know everything about it yet. They, they, they don't. And, and there within is a big problem. I mean, nobody is coming forward and saying, OK, here's the next step. This is the trajectory. This is exactly what's going to happen. What we are being delivered is a mountain of uncertainty. And I suppose this is probably one of the biggest challenges of our time, really, with anxiety, is to, to say, okay, we are now being almost forced to live with uncertainty in a very, very dramatic, big way. And I suppose we have two choices in what we do with it. Can, can we use this period to get more comfortable with uncertainty? 
we're spilling over a little bit, but there are more questions. And if you're happy, Owen, I'll just... Yeah, I, I, yeah absolutely. If you're, if you're happy, I'm... Another five minutes, why not? Peter asks, how does Matthew continue to provide such a positive exterior to internal grief? Is acting needed for resilience? Is acting needed for resilience? I don't think... I think it has to come internally. So it's not about showing up with a brave face. I think sometimes there can be as much power in vulnerability. There was a brilliant study done by an American social worker... Um, probably heard of her called Brené Brown and she did this amazing TED talk called The Power of Vulnerability and she talked about the happiest people on the planet were those who could acknowledge their vulnerability. She did 13 years of research on who, you know, who are the happy people, who are the people who are happiest and it was the people who could admit they were struggling. So it's not about acting and pretending, it's okay, just like you did earlier, I mean you show up really truthfully and say, God I really struggle. I think that, that, that's showing your vulnerability, but that's resilience and strength in my book. So it's not about acting. You're able to identify that you can do other things with your life and you can keep going, but you've been truthful about the fact that sometimes it's difficult. So I think it's, about not, it's not about pretending, but it's about reminding yourself, despite all of this, that you keep moving forward, that you keep going, and that you have a desire to be less anxious. So I, I don't think it's about acting and pretending. I think it's more about actually don't hide the vulnerability. This anonymous question says, if we only take one thing forward from the range of advice that you've given, Owen, what should it be? I would say my key piece of advice, Owen, and one of the things that I talk about in 10 Times Happier is, I mean, I think the key to life is really managing everything one step at a time. I think we're all trying to do too much. We're all trying to achieve too much. We all want to be somewhere different than we are. And I think this really old school message of just one step at a time what would be the next best step? Sometimes that can be enough. And I'm going to give two tips, actually. The second thing would be keep things more simple than you want them to. This is one of the things that I talk about a lot, 10 times happier. Keep life more simple than you want it to. We are overcomplicating our lives. You know, we're, we're making them more difficult than they need to be. Kelly asks you whether you could say anything about anxiety and food. She says she's really interested in how the fuel that we put into our bodies, into our system, affects our mood and our mental health. It's a brilliant question. There's a mountain of research done on here that foods with high fat content or high sugar content basically impact on the body, the body's inflammatory responses. And what we know from all the latest research on the brain is that an anxious brain is an inflamed brain. So if you're feeding your body foods that's high in sugars or fats and cause inflammation, then it's not going to have a healthy response for anxiety. So the, kind of, the cleaner the foods that you can put into your body, and there's a mountain of stuff online on foods that are good for anxiety, the cleaner you can keep your diet unquestionably. Um, I'm going to say in my own life, actually, too much caffeine, too much sugary stuff. Um, do my anxiety levels jump up? They do significantly. So if I've ever got a big gig or something coming on, where I want to feel quite level and, you know, I want to give my best. I try and stay off stuff. But the refined sugars, I mean, 100% they do add to anxiety. Is the online world, do you think, you mentioned online there, is it more helpful than it is harmful, do you think, in this area or the other way around? I'm talking in terms of mental health. People won't always be able to, to get to see a therapist immediately. Should, should people be looking online? Should people be going to the NHS if they're in the UK for, for tips and anti-anxiety videos and so forth? I mean, there's, look, there's brilliant resources out there. I mean, you know, the NHS is a, you know, 
IAP services have loads of groups and treatment options. So if people are struggling, go to your GP or look up who your local IAP service are. There's brilliant treatments available out there. But I think, you know, choose online. You know, you can go to content. I, I produce stuff on Instagram. I think I do that because I think I've got the experience and I try and give stuff back to people that I hope will help. But there are people out there delivering stuff on anxiety. And my, so my key piece of advice would be just always check someone's credentials. You know, make sure they've got a training, a background and experience that they're giving you research-driven clinical evidence, treatments, not somebody who's done a, a one-day course. So I think that, you know, you use it well and go to the, the resources that are good for you and then you know, scroll through the stuff that doesn't help. Just a final question, I think, Owen. This is another anonymous question. This feels very relevant to me. How, how can we deal with intrusive thoughts in the simplest way possible? You know, the, the thoughts that... that make us feel anxious in some people's cases can lead to panic attacks and perhaps in mine as well when those intrusive thoughts come they can come with great force what do we do with them yeah there was a again there was a brilliant study done in america years ago and they got i can't even remember the exact numbers but they got a lot of students i think it was five thousand students and they got them to talk about intrusive unwanted thoughts you know the thoughts that we would never share out loud with somebody else and it was really fascinating that you know, a lot of the thoughts were quite violent, sexual, stuff that you would think, oh my God, I could never tell somebody I had that thought. And here's the interesting thing. People who had a diagnosis of OCD, which is an anxiety disorder, the problem was that then when they had a thought that they didn't want, they attributed meaning to the thought. So for example, if they had a thought that was violent, they would say, oh my God, I should never have had that thought. I must be a bad person. Whereas somebody who didn't have an anxiety disorder would be able to just have a thought and just say, oh, that was an odd thought and they just let it go. So it's never about the content of the thought, it's your relationship with the thought and the meaning that you attribute. So for anybody who's struggling with intrusive unwanted thoughts, remember, this is a key thing. It's just a thought, it's not a fact. We can all have the weirdest, most unusual thoughts. They are not facts, they are just random you know, they're just literally random. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason why we have them. But the problem then is when you start to attribute meaning to them or try to place value on them and then turn it inwards and say, oh my God, I must be a bad person for having that thought. That's where the problem comes. So in a nutshell, you're not your thoughts. And I think there's a chapter. Have I got a chapter? Can I show the book? Is that all right in case people haven't seen it? Um, there's a chapter, I think, on... Managing the relationship, you say, in the book between thoughts and emotions and, and, and thoughts and behaviours. Yeah, yeah. And, and, how, and how they connect. Yeah. Now, right at the end of the book, importantly, you list a whole range of different help phone lines. Yeah. One of them is the Samaritans. It's a line that I give out on my show if we talk about mental yeah. health. The number to call is 116123. That's 116123. And it's, it's free and it's 24-7 in yeah. the UK. And I think in Ireland as well, although I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. But it's, it's really important. I, I want to stress I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a med- mental health expert. You, you're, you're not a doctor yourself. You're a psychotherapist. But it is so important, I think, to emphasize the, emphasize the importance of reaching out, the importance of talking to people, whether you're a man, a woman, whatever, whatever, however you identify, there is help out there. There is. And I think the important thing to, to say on top of that, that, you know, for anybody who's struggling, things can and do get better. And I know this from my clinical experience. I watch people every day of the week recover 
and get stronger and move forward. And even though when you're in the middle of a crisis, if you're feeling depressed or anxious, when you're in the middle of it, it feels like it's never going to end. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to end. It's a period of time. So the, the thing I would say to hold on to is hope is hugely important. And, and sometimes it might feel a bit abstract and it might feel, how can I be hopeful? But what we know is that when you can hold on just to your notion that things can get better, you change the chemistry in your brain, you produce more endorphins, you produce more encaphalins. So if you are struggling today, just even reminding yourself, okay, today's tough, but it isn't forever. And it doesn't mean that I can turn a corner. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be the day after, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to turn a corner. And I, I agree, just kind of talking even today, if you're struggling, talk to one person, share it with somebody, and then have a think about what help, what resources could help you out. It could be online it could be a book it could be going to your gp but I, I sincerely hope that 10 times happier those chapters at least give a framework and a base to get started and there is stuff there it's not just about understanding your problems it's about how it can move you forward and help you become unstuck you know so things calm things do get better oh no Kane, thank you so much for your Thanks, time Matthew. thank you for talking to us thank you to everybody for for joining us this evening these events obviously wouldn't be what they are without you being here. Do spread the word about the How To Academy. I'm going to be talking to Victoria Hislop, the best-selling author, on Friday evening at 6.30. We've got lots more events with me, with Hannah, with others throughout the summer and, of course, into the autumn. So snap up your tickets as quickly as possible. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you, Owen. Thank you so much. I know. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. And thanks for everyone who's um, tuned in to listen as well. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Owen O'Kane and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Daugherty. If you enjoyed the episode, please do seek out Owen's books, 10 to Zen and 10 Times Happier. And visit us online for live streams and podcasts with some of the world's most eminent and exciting psychologists, therapists and neuroscientists. Coming up soon, we've got David Eagleman talking to Matt about the brain's ability to adapt and change, and Hannah McInnes in conversation with Maria Konnikova, the psychologist and science writer who became a champion poker player while researching a new book on decision-making. You'll find them both at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening. Listening.